I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to The Napoleon Assist. Now, normally I don't do organisational endorsements on this podcast because I think objectivity is important in any podcast. But today I want to give the floor to an organisation that is doing some great work to preserve some of the heritage from the Napoleonic Wars and is therefore as such a very worthy cause. I'm therefore joined by two leading members of the Friends of the Lions of Torres Vedras, the organisation which does brilliant work restoring the fortifications which played a pivotal role in the defence of Portugal against the third French invasion of 1810 to 11. Mark Thompson is joining me. He's a deeply respected historian of the Peninsula War, having written about Wellington's engineers, often overlooked, in a 2015 book for Pen and Sword. He's produced the previously unpublished diary of Edmund Malcaster, the letters of Lancelot Michel, and his book on Field Marshal John Burgoyne is due out any day. I'm also joined by Andrew Dismore, a founder member and the chairman of the Friends of the Lines of Torres Vedras, which as an organisation came out of a visit by MPs, including Andrew, to Portuguese Parliament in 2009. Gents, it's great to have you both on. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for taking the time to talk about the, the Lines of Torres Vedras and also the organisation, the Friends of the Lines. How are you both, first of all? Uh, well, thank you. I'm fine. Not caught anything yet. Let's talk, first of all, about the Friends of the Lines of Torres Vedras before we get onto the history, because it's a hugely ambitious project. So what does the organisation do, first of all? Well, we started, as you said, in 2009. Uh, a group of parliamentarians went over to Portugal to meet with Portuguese MPs. But we also decided to go and um, do a bit of sightseeing around the lines at the time. And what was quite interesting then, looking back quite a while now, is that the lines needed quite a bit of TLC. Some of the forts were in poor condition. Uh, and also, whilst the local municipalities were starting to get their act together, it was quite clear that a lot of thought needed to be done into how to promote the lines and 
uh, and how to work out how to do some restoration work, get them listed and so forth. Uh, and we were politicians, and when we came back, we decided to set up a group called the Friends of the Lines uh, with those objects in mind. And it wasn't just for MPs um, and peers, it was also for people with an interest. And from that, we, we got going. Some of the projects we tried didn't work out. We had a very ambitious one to try and rebuild a, uh, a signalling station using the Royal Engineers, um, but that didn't quite work out for funding reasons. So. Now, we, we do give grants to uh, do a bit of small-scale restoration work of one sort or another. For example, we paid to restore the Fletcher Memorial to uh, the Royal Engineer who was pivotal in the creation of the lines. Uh, but we also have visits to Portugal. We should be there, I think about now, or coming up soon, uh, for the anniversary uh, in October every year. Uh, we alternate with a visit to Portugal and the Portuguese come over to London. But I think part of it also isn't just to go and have fun and visit lines and, and, and build links with the local municipalities who are always very generous and, and hospitable. Um, it's also to talk to them about what they see the challenges are. And I, I recall in particular going over to see them uh, soon after I became chair and discussing with them how we could promote the lines uh, as a tourist uh, objective. And they seem to think that you could be able to prize people off the sunny beaches of, of uh, around Lisbon to come and visit the lines and I sort of said well actually your your market is probably not people who are here for sunbathing and, and, and swimming in the, and any other S's you can think of it's more a specialist thing so we work with them to try and promote the lines as uh, a gastronomic occasion uh, wonderful walking holidays around there and also the historical connection which is really important so putting all that together in the, in the package which they've started to do Unfortunately, obviously, they've been hit by coronavirus, reason we can't go there. But I think we're now seeing the municipalities get much more to grips with the things that need to be done to, to promote the lines. And another one of the great things that you do, and certainly this is how I found out about the, the organisation myself, was that you run conferences from time to time, don't you? Tell me a bit about that process. Yeah, well, we had a, a big conference uh, a couple of years ago, and that's on, on the lines day in October, when we're doing the home visit as opposed to the away visit. And we try and get um, top flight speakers uh, to come along and, and talk about some aspect of the lines. Uh, and we've done pretty well with that. We had uh, Marcus Beresford come along and talk about, uh, about uh, the role of the Portuguese in the lines uh, last year, I think it was, for example. Uh, and then we can also link that round uh, a, a very agreeable dinner as well, to which we might invite some. Can, can I throw in another bit more so on, on the subject of the lines? Because I think what is also important for people to realise is, is how much effort there is being made locally now within Portugal. You know, over the, the last 10 years uh, since the Friends were formed, we, we have seen a massive improvement in the signage and the repair and the preservation and the promotion of the lines by the, the local municipalities. And when I first went there 15 years ago, you really had to take an ordnance survey map and find them yourself. Now they're all signposted. There are books with routes available, including where you can stop to eat and drink. Uh, it is now quite, it is much easier now to visit and go and see some of these forts than it was even a few years ago. And that's all to the credit of, of the local authorities. And I, I should also, uh, say that Mark runs our website and he's done a brilliant job uh, in putting a, 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 on the website uh, details of every single thought. Um, we've got 
map references and so forth and, and diagrams. And now uh, the latest project in relation to that is trying to get Google Maps pictures of them uh, to, uh, to supplement that. So we also have our, our members actually in Portugal who feedback quite a lot of information as well. And it's worth saying that these lines for people who aren't familiar with the geography are very close to Lisbon itself. And we'll talk about the reasons for that in, in a moment when we start to talk about the history. But in terms of reaching them, it's really not that difficult. And if you're going out there, whether it's for a trip to Lisbon itself or whether you're going out there specifically to tour the battlefields, the odds are you're going to be using Lisbon Airport anyway. And so you're probably going to pass the lines as it is. So it makes a lot of sense to include that within your tour. If you're if you're going out there, you can certainly do a very good day trip to visit some of the, the bigger forts. Uh, some of the smaller ones are, are a bit more elusive, um, but they're all there, um, and uh, it can be an interesting visit just to go and try and find some of the smaller ones, which aren't visited that often, uh, as opposed to the big ones, which are all very interesting. And the municipalities is also a very good, very good museum quality uh, displays. So let's talk about the history then and give people some of the context behind why the, these forts matter. For people who aren't familiar, we're obviously talking about the Peninsula War, it being Portugal, but what's the, the wider context within the Napoleonic Wars at the time the lines were being built and garrisoned? Okay, let, let, let's go back to about 1808. You could probably say, and I, I don't consider myself a, a Central European Napoleonic expert, but 1808, Napoleon's pretty much at the height of his powers. Um, and this is really when the Peninsula War is kicking off. The, the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, as he was at the time, has arrived in August 1808, fought the first couple of battles. And um, after... Um, an armistice, the Convention of Sintra was for, which basically meant the, the, the Royal Navy transported the French army back to uh, France to, to uh, evacuate them out of the country. Talking, talking about the Convention of Sintra is, is an article in its own right because it, it caused a lot of angst at the time. But let's stay, sticking with the history of the lines themselves. So towards the end of 1808, the French have been thrown out of Portugal, which I'm sure will not have gone down desperately well with um, Napoleon. As we move into 1809, the French invade Portugal for the second time and the Duke of Wellington throws them out for the second time, which probably also didn't go down very well with Napoleon. Looking at the, the wider picture at this point, 1809, Napoleon is, is actually fighting primarily the Austrians in, in Central Europe. And after the defeat of the Austrians in July 1809 at the Battle of Wagram, uh, peace, inverted commas, uh, falls over Europe again. Napoleon now sort of comes back to something that's been irritating him, which is the peninsula and vows in, in the summer 1809, he's going to bring 100,000 new troops to the peninsula and throw the British army into the sea and take control of the peninsula again. So the, the, the background towards the end of 1809 is there are, shall we say rough numbers, quarter of a million French troops in the peninsula. Napoleon says he's going to personally lead another 100,000 French troops into the peninsula. Wellington's got about 30,000 troops. The newly trained, newly formed Portuguese army could just about put the same number together. The Spaniards could add 
probably a hundred thousand troops in total, but these were split in, into smaller groups all over the Iberian Peninsula. So just yeah, the, the high level numbers are Wellington was massively outnumbered and realized there was no opportunity to actually face the French in an open battle where defeat was almost certain. So he needed a plan B and I suppose the short version for the moment, we'll, we'll put some detail in, is plan B was the lines of Torres Vedras. Absolutely. And this is what I find so incredible about the lines. People always go, oh, the lines of Torres Vedras is 1810, 1811. But in saying that, they're actually fundamentally wrong because the story behind the creation of the lines and the planning that went into some of the landscaping uh, that also went in, into constructing these fortifications goes back to the aftermath of the Battle of Talavera and, and arguably actually even earlier than that in 1809 when Wellington had gone into Spain, found that working with his Spanish allies in Spain wasn't going to be viable until supply issues were sorted out and therefore had to start thinking much further ahead in terms of uh, planning for what he assumed would eventually be a French onslaught. Yeah, I, I think you're right uh, that in some ways the Battle of Talavera was, was happening within a few weeks of the Battle of Vagram. So the enthusiasm of early 1809 when the, the French were evicted from Portugal again, I think reality arrived in the summer and autumn of 1809. And Wellington realised after Talavera when he was forced to retreat because of the numerous French armies, that he needed some other way of operating. Now, you know, defences around Lisbon, this is kind of an interesting one. Did it start before Talavera? Yeah. I think the first evidence of fortifications around Lisbon was 2000 years ago. So this, this wasn't quite a new idea, even at the time. And, and certainly, I mean, you, you're going back to almost the Phoenicians and then you had the Moors, then you had the Romans. Then eventually, sort of by the 12th, 13th century, the Christians are back in control. So, so Lisbon has been defended on a regular basis for, for many, many hundreds of years. Um, so another thing... I think you're right in saying, Mark, that, that after Vinheira, when the French retreated to Lisbon, um, they thought was given then to fortify the, the, the area, but they never got around to doing it. Well, certainly at the time, and. Um, I'll pick this up and I'll come back to it as well. The, the French who invaded in 1807 under Junot, their chief engineer was called Humbert Vincent, and he did a lot of investigations around the area and did come up with some um, ideas on defence, which I, I'll flesh out in a minute. It's also true that Wellesley, Wellington as he became in 1808, actually stayed in the area for, for some weeks with the uh, forces he was in command of at the time. And John Moore, who also came out in, in 1809, he also made comments along the lines of, I really don't know why the French didn't put up a fight in 1808 because getting over these hills would be really difficult. That's me paraphrasing, of course. So yeah, the idea of defending the area wasn't new, but um, I think when you get into 1809, we need to talk a little bit more detail about what was going on. Okay, so let, let, let's go back to early 1808. The French are in Lisbon. Um, Colonel Vincent, the chief French engineer, 
has sent out all his engineers and a significant number of Portuguese engineers to survey Portugal quickly and determine whether it was defensible. So th this was a bit more than just around Lisbon. This was going to the fortresses on the border in the north, down as far as the Algarve, covering the whole of the country, getting some basic information on the fortresses and the roads. What came out of that as we went into early 1809 was a report by Vincent on how the French could remain in Portugal because they felt quite exposed. Vincent's report it was roughly in two parts. The first part was how to defend the Tagus because the expectation was the Royal Navy would attack the Tagus. But then he did also address how to defend Lisbon from a land attack. His ideas actually started much further out than where the lines of Torres Vedras were. He was talking about starting defences around Abrantes, which, which is 100 miles away, defensive lines around Santarem, which is about 50 miles away. So very much a bit of a, a, a layered defence slowing down any attack. And he did note that there were some good defensive positions about 25, 30 miles north of Lisbon. Obviously, as we get into the middle of 1808, um, you know, the, the French are, are attacked again by Wellesley and thrown out. So none of this came into fruition, but you could see you know, the French had realized the potential. Right, now the Portuguese get involved or become more visible. Working for the French at this period was a number of Portuguese engineers, including a gentleman called Jose Maria das Neves Costa. Um, who was a very knowledgeable, intelligent uh, engineer who actually had previously done a lot of surveying work around Portugal. He asked and got permission to continue the work on, on developing, surveying and identifying defensive positions around Lisbon in 1809. And in about May 1809, he published a very comprehensive and detailed report on how to defend the area to the north of Lisbon. And this was based around the lines of Torres Vedras. I'll, I'll come back to this again, but Neves Costa claimed that it was his idea to build the lines of Torres Vedras. And there's, there's some justification there. But if you actually read his um, report, he, he was focusing on the potential for all these hills to the north of Lisbon to be used to slow down uh, uh, an invasion. So his focus was on, on slowing down an invasion, not building specific fortifications that could be used. But nevertheless, he, he, he put a huge amount of work in. As we come into the end of 1809, Wellington realizes he needs to do something. He's had some thought because as early as March 1809, he's telling the British government, Lisbon can be defended. He comes back and rides over the whole area. October the 20th, he um, issues a report, uh, orders to the engineers saying, I want you to build this set of fortifications. Wellington claims he never saw uh, Neves Costa's work, which <laughs> politely is a bit unbelievable. Um, but we, again, we'll, we'll maybe pick that up a bit later. But Wellington had a different idea on how to use this terrain, and it was very much around building fortifications that would, again, the, the intention was still to slow the French down. The original plan was three forward fortifications, big forts, 
a pretty much a continuous line of supports, self-supporting forts several miles behind them. And then what they called the third line, which was a set of fortifications around a point where Wellington could evacuate the British army if it all went horribly wrong. So Wellington's idea was very much a development on using the hills to slow down uh, an invasion and was now very much looking at trying to stop them before they got to Lisbon. I, th I think people forget about the third line, which is never really needed, but uh, it just shows that Wellington was, uh, was thinking perhaps back to Corona and where everything went pear-shaped before yeah. and uh, he didn't want to be caught out the same way. So. Yeah. Um, the third line was there for, for, for the Dunkirk evacuation, which was never needed. Yeah, the, what, what needs to be remembered, again, is, is the political situation and the, the eternal problem Wellington had, which was that his army was much smaller than the French. Now, Wellington was reminded, again, gross generalisation by me, every two or three weeks by, by the British government, that he actually had the only viable British army in existence. So please don't break it. So he always had to keep in mind that, that the one thing he could not afford to do was get himself in a position where the army he controlled was destroyed because almost literally the British would have struggled to put another force together, even of this relatively small size of 30 or 40,000. It was probably also made slightly worse by the, the British invasion of the Low Countries in 1809 at Valkyran where well, they did actually cobble together another British army of 40,000. The, the invasion was disastrous and they all came home with, I think it was a, a mixture of malaria and, and, and dysentery, you know, what they called Walker and fever. Uh, and the troops that went, some of them never actually recovered. So by the end of 1809, Wellington was literally in command of the only army the British had. So evacuation was absolutely an important part yeah, or, or, or of his uh, defences. Absolutely, there's so, there's definitely a sort of legacy of Moore there, isn't there? But there's there's another legacy of Moore in a way, in the sense that I'm sure it's Moore who reports at one point that Portugal cannot be defended, and I think he's talking specifically about the Portuguese border as opposed to thinking about defending Lisbon. But that does have an influence on people's mindsets when they're looking at these proposals to construct this range of fortifications, doesn't it? Yeah, Zach, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Moore, Moore did say something along those lines. And if truth be told, Moore and pretty much everybody else had the same view. Wellington was pretty much unique at this point in believing that the, uh, the French could be stopped. Uh, and that's included his senior generals. It included probably the majority of the engineers. And when you read the letters of a lot of the uh, junior officers and even some of the, uh, the the troops at the time, they all kind of, this was what they were saying, it's only a matter of time before the French are going to push us back to the sea and we're going to have to evacuate. So, so Wellington was almost a lone voice in 1809 and 1810 thinking that, that you know, Lisbon could be defended. Uh, and this goes on, e even sort of in, in the, you know, the, the weeks after they occupied the lines in, in October 1810, yeah. senior British generals were still thinking this isn't going to work. So th th this in some ways was, you know, people talk about Wellington having an insight that seemed to be lost on other people. But th this was one occasion when he stopped to something he believed when pretty much everybody around him was saying 
it can't be done. So let's bring the engineers in because the engineers would have overseen the construction of, of these lines, but it wasn't actually the army itself that did the bulk of the work, was it? No, it wasn't. The, the, the bulk of the actual digging work was done by Portuguese civilians. Initially, when the work started off in November 1809, the, the, the work was done by two Portuguese militia regiments, about 2,000 militia who, um, inverted commas, volunteered to do all, all the spade work, literally. Uh, so November 1809, and, and again, people sort of have, have a bit of a, a misperception of, of, of the lines here. And we'll talk about the number forts in a minute, but when it started off in November 1809, only three places were being worked on. They were building, not unexpectedly, the evacuation point at San Julian. That was the first thing that was started. Few days after, work started at Torres Vedras uh, town itself and at the Sobral, Sobral de Monte Grassa, which is, th these were the two biggest redoubts on the lines. That was the only work that was really done in 1809. It wasn't till the beginning of 1810 before they started extending to all these other multiple forts and a continuous line of defence that we talked about. So this actually worked very gradually over a period. You can understand why Wellington wanted the evacuation point done first. The two big forts were sitting on the main routes in, towards Lisbon from the north. The third main route being along the banks of the Tagus. Wellington was intending to put his army there. So the three main routes from the north were covered and that gave him time to withdraw and evacuate the army if that came necessary. So that's kind of where it all started off in the end of 1809. As we get into sort of like early 1810, um, the work starts expanding, particularly on what became the second line. So this is a line from a place called Al Al Alhandra to the uh, Atlantic coast. Uh, and there, there's, you know, they, they started extending the forts along this whole area. So that was the bulk of the work that, that started through February, March, April, May. Now, as the, as the year went on, it became apparent that the, the Allies were going to have more time than they thought to build the lines because the French were dawdling. I, I need to go back and actually talk about what the French had been doing over this period. So autumn 1809, Napoleon says he's going to invade with 100,000 troops. As he gets into the winter 1809, um, thoughts of the heir to the throne, or heir to the emperorship, came up. And he got much more interested in finding his new empress than invading Portugal. So eventually, and this again, we're, we're into 1810 by this point, he decides he's not going and, and appoints uh, Marshal André Massena to do it instead. And the 100,000 troops that Napoleon said he was going to bring suddenly started diminishing, which didn't help Massena's position. The other, in my opinion, fatal mistake he made is Napoleon did not appoint an overall commander in, in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula. So when Massena arrived, he found great difficulty in getting the other French commanders to see the priorities that he needed. So Massena was pretty much had his back against the wall before he even started the invasion. The Senate's not arriving until April, May time in northern Spain to take the two main fortresses in the north, which is Theodad Rodrigo in Spain 
and the facing fortress in Portugal, Almeida. And this meant that Wellington, going back to the point I was making, realised he had a lot more time than he thought. So they started extending the work, the defensive work on the lines. And it was realised that what was meant to be just two forts out in front at Torres Vedras and Sobral could be extended. So they started working from the banks of the Tagus towards Sobral, heavily fortifying that area. I counted up a few days ago, there were 45 forts over a space of about five miles when this area was finished, so back by, by 1812. So th th this started a massive area of fortification. And then again, as more time went on, they started extending um, towards the Atlantic Ocean from Torres Vedras. So those extra two or three months allowed a lot of additional work and allowed the, the two forts out the front to become what we now call the first line. So massive, massive amounts of, of work done, working non-stop, starting with 2,000 militia. By the end, there's probably 7,000 civilians working on this, generally being paid. So this was, in the early 19th century, a massive engineering exercise. So where does the second line come in? Okay, the, the first line goes from, uh, um, from Alhandra on the Tagus through, through to the Atlantic coast um, to, to the west of Torres Vedras. Five or six miles below that, um, the, there is another line that passes through Bucelash and Montesic and Mafra and again goes to the Atlantic coast. So the second line was always the strongest of, of, of the lines, but the French never ever got close to it because sufficient work had been done on the first line to, to make that a real challenge. The French recognised that to make any sort of form of frontal assault on the lines and fight their way through two defensive lines, by the time they got to Lisbon, you know, they would have lost a substantial proportion of the army. There's so many things I want to say. It's different though which order to do them in. What, what, what I should say at this point, let, let's talk about who was actually involved in controlling this work, because it leads me on to another point I need to make. There was probably never more than about 15 Royal Engineer officers overseeing this work through the period. And there were some Portuguese there, apparently some of the British authors deigned to say. There was actually quite a few Portuguese engineers working on it as well. Um, the number's very difficult to pin down. If you look at the the standard work on the subject, John Jones's Journal of the Sieges, you can only pick out about four names of Portuguese engineers. If you go through the letters of the engineers, you pick out a few more. If you look at some of the more modern Portuguese resources on the subject, the number gets up to about 30. And that's quite reasonable because the Portuguese engineering service was about the same size as the Royal Engineers. But there's a confusion there. Well, why are the Portuguese saying 30 when, when the Allied, so that particularly the, the British sources say a lot less? And this is because as well as the first line and the second line and the third line that we've talked about so far, and there is a fourth line that we may get a minute to talk about, the Portuguese were building a completely independent set of fortifications on the city boundaries. So these are 15 or so miles behind the second line of Torres Vedras. 
So this, this is fortifying large buildings, convents, buildings and small redoubts, and they built about 30 redoubts right on the edge of the city. So where were the Portuguese engineers working? I am certain there was somewhere between eight and 10 Portuguese engineers working on the lines themselves. And there is evidence to support that statement. I reckon the other 20 were probably working around Lisbon itself. So when you start looking at it, this is a massive engineering exercise that's going on. And I'm gonna name all the lines now, just cause it gets really, really confusing. We have the first line, which includes Sobral and Torres Vedras. We have the second line that goes through Bucelas and Montesic and Mafra. So that's where the bulk of the 152 forts, which is the wrong number, by the way, uh, were. We have the third line, which is made up of about a dozen forts around the evacuation point at San Julian. Around the city itself, there are another 29 forts built by the Portuguese. The fourth line was started in December 1811, so that's after the lines were occupied, and this was built to, on the south bank of the Tagus, because if the French advanced on the south bank of the Tagus, they could outflank what Wellington had done, and even if they couldn't cross, they could bombard the shipping in the Tagus estuary, which is where Wellington was keeping his evacuation fleet. So December 1811, we a fourth line was built south of the Tagus. Some people even talk about a fifth line because one of the alternate evacuation points was about 20 or 30 miles south of Lisbon and on the south bank of the Tagus at a place called Setubal. And they did actually start building some fortifications around that as well. So if you start looking at these numbers and start putting them all together, um, the generally accepted number of forts on the lines is 152. That's the number that people tend to bandy around. But what again gets missed in there is some of the forts were numbered 1A, B, C, D, E, F, G. There was a 5A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And there were a couple of others that A and B. So there were actually about 170 forts on the lines itself. On top of that, there are some unnumbered defensive positions. Not many, but you can probably add another 10 to that. So again, just trying to build a picture of the scale of this. We are talking 230, 240 defensive positions. The biggest could hold 1,500 men. The smallest weren't much more than a bit of a wall, which may or may not have a gun on it. So huge difference in size but still a massive engineering task that's going on just a couple more points about the line again to give you an idea of the scale now remember this is being done by a person holding a spade and using a spade so if we look at um the the largest the forts at sobral which would hold about 1500 men my calculations, and I accept the fag packet, estimate that to dig the ditches and the parapets for it was about 18,000 metric tonnes was moved for one fort. Um, there are some calculations which, with my um, pigeon Portuguese, I've, I've, I've tried to extract from Colonel Sousa Lobo's recent book on the lines of Torres Vedras. 
and he reckons it's something like 800,000 cubic meters of soil were moved to build the lines. That is an awful lot of soil that's being moved. I'm trying to find the number in my notes now, but I, I can't find it. Well, for comparison, uh, um, the uh, Colosseum in Rome is 100,000 cubic meters of stone. Yes, thank, thank you, Andrew. Um, I, I misspoke having found the, the number. Colonel Sousa Lobo estimates only 500, oh no, I changed it into tons from cubic meters. 500,000 tons, half a million tons of soil were moved to build these. Uh, I think Not, it's important to, to point out actually, because we haven't actually said this so far, that the, most of, the, most of the, uh, the fortifications are earthworks, they're not stone Vauban type forts that are with star-shaped stone walls. They are overwhelmingly earthworks. Thank you, Andrew. You're absolutely right. And what they found, which shouldn't have come as a surprise to anybody in the winter of 1810, when it rains in Portugal, which it rains a lot through the autumn in Portugal, they all started washing away. So a lot of 1811 was actually spent uh, putting stone facings on the bigger forts. But yes, thank you, Andrew, for that point. And, that, and that's, also one of, that's also one of the challenges of today, that uh, 200 years on, the, the, the weather has deteriorated a lot of these earthworks. Some have pretty well disappeared. Um, yeah. and, and the restoration work is, is a never-ending occupation, trying to restore the, 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 the main ones. Yeah, I, I was in Fort San Vicente in Torres Vedras three or four years ago, um, late in the year, and I actually saw evidence of, of that, and it was actually part of the stone-faced wall that had collapsed with the rains. So, as you say, the problem is still there today, and even with stone-facing, they, they have this nasty habit of collapsing when it rains hard. Right, two, two more numbers and then we'll maybe move on to something other than the, 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 the scales. 630 guns on the lines, roughly 850 tonnes, and to carry the powder and the uh, round shot up was probably about another 450 tonnes. So moving the guns in was 1,200 tonnes uh, yeah, to, to set them up for the first time. And you know, then there would need to be regular replenishment along the way. A Portuguese ox cart, which was used for moving things, carried about 250 kilograms. So moving in the first set of, of round shot and gunpowder would have been 2,000 journeys by ox carts. And then that would have continued incessantly from there. So just again, given an idea of the scale of what was involved in this. I mean, one of the things that is also worth saying is that they're not just building fortifications or earthworks, are they? They are physically shaping the land. It's like a massive landscaping project in a sense, because they steepen some of the slopes they're involved in, damming some of the rivers so that when the floods come in the, the um, autumn rains, it will flood a number of the valleys to narrow the fronts along which the French can actually attack if they do ever attack. Yeah, they, they, they're making escarpments all over the place. And I think one of the things when you visit the lines now, is sometimes it's difficult to actually perceive what they were like because since then, over the years, the trees and undergrowth have grown back when they're obviously they were all cut down at the time. So it's, sometimes it's difficult. You go to see a small fort that's surrounded by trees. You know, it, it can be difficult to imagine what it was actually like without the trees. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, yes, Andrew, absolutely right. And it, similarly, Zach, yes, absolutely right. Uh, lots of scarping done and scarping again, not dragging soil around, but using explosives to build near vertical uh, slopes on, on the top of some of the leading hills. Uh, undertakers on the first line, they, they did this about two miles. Later on um, in late 1810, they started doing the same on the banks of the Tagus on the second line. And again, there's probably a mile there. They cut down tens of thousands of trees, you know, so this is cork trees and olive trees. So you're destroying the economy as you go uh, and, and making abatis with, you know, complete trees, you know, not, not a bit of wicker weaving, but pulling whole trees into place to make barriers. There was scarping to, to clear fields of fire. There were new roads built behind the, the, the lines to allow rapid communication. Roads in front of the lines were destroyed. Bridges were destroyed. Lots and lots of other work going on. Um, both ends of the line were wet, you'll probably gather. Uh, and we, we shouldn't ignore the role of the, the Royal Navy in keeping these lines secure. Uh, the Atlantic coast, what, what was watched by some of the, well, I'm going to say larger Royal Navy ships, by that I mean frigates, frigates and brigs rather than gunboats. Uh, in the Tagus, there were smaller gunboats, maybe having one or two guns on them, patrolling around the ends of the line and further north. So making any possibility of the French crossing or, or coming down the river next to impossible. And again, in terms of scale, Gunboats and ferry boats on the Tagus at, at peaks, they were talking several hundred boats were milling around. The biggest boat up the, the, the Tagus was HMS Archer, uh, 25 metres long, about 200 tonnes, carrying 12 carronades, which are short cannon. So when we say gunboat, they weren't necessarily little things. So some of them were quite substantial and they were you know, carrying 18 pounder cannon in some occasions. So you know, they could spoil your day if they caught you in the open. And I mean, you've covered in, in really great detail the, the, the scale of these. You've got 7,000 civilians. You've got so many different lines being constructed, huge amounts of work going on. None of that is something that you can keep particularly secret from prying eyes. And yet the thing that always gets me about this is that the French, despite having had their own plans, despite having thought about fortifications, despite presumably having their own spy networks active within Portugal at the time, were completely clueless that they've been built. Massner is said to have seen them um, and sort of demanded from his subordinates to know why he hadn't heard of them and when they said well we didn't have any intelligence he sort of turns around and says yes but the hills why didn't build the hills so how was it all kept so secret <laughs> i think this is an interesting question it, it, it's one i've dwelled on it in, in sort of my published next year book on the lines of torres Vedras. but i think the, the, the issue of secrecy is kind of interesting that i don't think they were secret per se i just have th i think you need to think about the early 18th century they were 30 miles north of Lisbon and they were 30 miles across. People didn't generally travel around the area. So I think people would have noticed a few forts being built close to where they live. But unless you travel the whole area, you don't really get a feel that this, this is extensive. 
So I think the locals not knowing you can kind of understand. Wellington, and again, I, I spent quite a bit of time going through the dispatches. I can't find him mentioning them by name at all, pretty much until he arrives in them in October 1810. There's, there's vague comments about defences at Lisbon, but it's like he wasn't actually sending any information home. Because one of his major complaints at the time is anything he said to the government was in the newspapers the following day. So I think he had a strategy of not saying very much at home about it. I, I need to say also there that when you read the Royal Engineers letters at the time, they were actually writing home and saying what was going on. Uh, most of them f adding on the end, and this isn't going to work. So it's, it's interesting that I, I think there, there was secrecy, I think, wasn't as much a, a definite plan as something that happened. Now, let's, what's, let's what's, in, what's interesting, just to interrupt, Mark, is that obviously Wellington was sending back the money all the time to pay for all this, and the government were sending the money back, but presumably not necessarily knowing what, what was going on, what he was doing with it. I, I think he wasn't specifically saying what he was doing with the money, but he was certainly saying, let's give me the money. No, let's go back to the French. Um, we talked about Junot invading in 1807 and, and his chief engineer, uh, uh, Vincent. Well, guess who came back with Messena? Junot. Uh, one of Junot's generals was General Foy, or Foy as we seem to mispronounce it in this country. And there was another whose name has escaped me the moment. Messena came with people who had been there in 1807 and 1808. Messena also had with him a, a number of Portuguese um, advisors, who you assume some of them must have been aware of, of the terrain to the north of Lisbon. The blame generally seems to, to be put on, on, on his map by Lopez of the time, which I do accept that if you look at it, uh, these hills don't appear at all on the Lopez map. You know, it's not quite a straight walk in, in, into Lisbon, but, but very close to it. So Massena wasn't getting any help from his own officers, which I think is really interesting. He wasn't getting any help from the Portuguese. He wasn't getting any help from the maps, but he did know about them well before he arrived at the lines because he'd started getting some information about defenses north of Lisbon. But to be fair to him, I think it was discounted at the time as you, not unreasonably that, yeah, but yeah, yeah a few defensive forts is not going to stop my army of 60,000 troops when I get there. You know, we'll just go around them, which was what typically happened at the time. So they knew, but I, I, I think they kind of discounted the seriousness of them until they actually stood in front of them and faced them. And as I say, I think it was the hills more than the forts that, that shot Messina. Um, and that's where that, that, I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or a real quote, but it certainly do, does get mentioned regularly about, you know, the, the British might have built the hills, but uh, built the forts, but, you know, they didn't build the hills. I have to say that I, I think just widening that out, I think Wellington did exactly the same at Salamanca in 1812, when he was warned as he approached the city that the French had been building defences. Um, and it wasn't until they actually arrived and seen the fairly substantial defensive works that the French had built by pretty much demolishing the whole of the clerical and academic quarter 
of Salamanca that he realised that the defences were more than he actually had the equipment to deal with. So maybe Messina wasn't the only one who um, didn't get the message when it was given to him. One of the really striking things for me about the lines is that they were never properly tested. They were so formidable that the French sort of took one look at them and went, mm, this isn't going to work. And on top of that, they weren't actually garrisoned by the regular army, which I think is a common misconception. People have these visions of redcoats garrisoning the forward defences, and they were actually manned by the militia, weren't they? Yeah, pretty, pretty much so. This, this uh, I mean, bizarrely, is the thing that seemed to be completely missed by a lot of Wellington senior officers and the vast majority of the engineers. They just didn't get what Wellington's plan was. And I just find that quite unbelievable. Wellington's plan throughout, as far as I can see, was to keep his first line troops concentrated to enable them to respond to any attack. And the intention was always the forts would be managed by what I call second line troops. So that's the militia, the local levee, which were called Ordonenza, um, and that's pretty much what banned the, the, uh, the lines. So when they were occupied in October 1810, there was something like 15 regiments of Portuguese militia there. So that, that was about 9,000 troops in total. On top of that, there was 3,000 Portuguese second line artillery troops, obviously manning the guns there. There was a tiny number of British artillery spread very thinly around, you know, two, 250. But, you know, the, the forts themselves were manned by militia, levy, with a tiny smattering of British. There's only one area where I've, I've heard reference to British troops being in a fort, and it was in Torres Vedras town itself where pretty much through 1810 and into 1811, there was a regiment or less stationed there. Not quite sure why, unless Wellington was nervous it, that it was some weak point on the lines and he wanted it to be strengthened a, a little bit. So that, that's kind of what I think the, the, the overall plan was for, for manning the lines. Now, the other misconception that probably needs to be picked up is People talk about the first, the second, the third lines and, and how many tens of thousands of troops were needed to occupy them. Well, the answer is they didn't. The plan was, you know, you occupy the first line with troops. There's next to nothing on the second and third lines. If you're forced away, the troops in the first line retire to the second line and man those. And there's still not very much in the third line. And if you force back again, you roll back. So the plan was never for more than one line to be fully occupied at any one time. So whilst if you add up all the numbers, it might be 30,000 or so required. You actually didn't need more than about 10,000 troops to man the, the leading line at, at that point in time. So was Wellington thinking about a pitched battle between, let's call it line two, the, the second of the, the forward lines between the Tagus and the Atlantic. Was he planning to fight another pitch battle? Because obviously there's Bosako um, earlier in this campaign, which is a sort of deliberate delaying action that was never going to completely destroy the French army. 
was there plans for a, a stand to try and defend Lisbon if lines one and two failed? Um, I'm going to answer something else first. Um, Basako again is interesting and sticking neck out because it always gets better response when you, you post these things. I actually think Wellington was hoping he could stop the French of Basako. You, you, you read some, of, some of, of his letters and whilst he was preparing to retreat, you do wonder that whether he thought he could stop them and wh whether the manoeuvre around Wellington's left flank at Basako was, it certainly wasn't an oversight because Wellington was aware of the roads and he blames some Portuguese militia for not stopping the French, which is incredibly unfair. But, but I think Wellington thought he might be able to stop them there. Anyway, moving on, there, there's, a, there's a debate for, for online. I don't think Wellington had any plan of fighting a pitched battle, but he thought about it regularly and, and wrote about it regularly. And certainly as we get into um, sort of the first two or three months in the line, Wellington realised he was stronger than the French and he did debate whether he should actually go out and attack them. And certainly his commanders and most of the troops were pretty frustrated that he didn't. But Wellington kept thinking the idea through and in the end deciding, no, I'm just going to sit here and watch them starve. We'll talk about starving in a minute, maybe. Um, yeah, if I go out, I am risking a battle. If I lose that battle, we lose the Iberian Peninsula because I have to lose. I will have to leave. So he kept thinking about it. But in the end, I think the right decision was sit tight and let the French army destroy itself. As you say, that's definitely in Wellington's mentality, isn't there? There's this famous quote where he says, allegedly um, observing the French army, I could lick those fellows any day, but it would cost me 10,000 men. And this is the last army that England has. I must preserve it. And it yeah, goes yeah. back to what you were saying earlier about him being so conscious that he couldn't afford to waste his men's lives with this being the last army that Britain could realistically field at the time. Yeah. I, through, through this period, while, whilst, um, and I'm going back to before they occupied the lines now, so through, through the summer of, of 1810, before they were occupied, uh, Wellington was obviously watching the French in the north, and he did get into a fairly major argument with the, the Portuguese Regency at the time. You know, the plan not to defend the border was agreed. The plan to do some form of scorched earth policy was agreed. Um, but when it came to the reality, that there was a fairly furious argument, particularly one of the members of the Regency, Principal Sousa, who basically caused enormous amounts of trouble, you know, demanding that Wellington you know, fights at all costs on the border to protect the Portuguese nation. It got pretty unpleasant you know, to the point of Wellington writing to the, the Portuguese Prince Regent in Brazil, um, my interpretation again, which is very much either he goes or I go sort of letter, but it caused a huge amount of ill feeling through 1810. And some of the issues about the scorched earth policy not being applied properly and civilian casualties in some ways can be put back to this argument that there were significant delays in ordering civilians to flee in front of the French army. Um, and you know, th there was fairly tragic results for the Portuguese civilian population. 
Okay, so whilst we're talking about civilian casualties, let's let's move on to, to discuss that properly, because one of the myths that's been circulating for a while, and which actually this particularly blew up on social media and in the forum recently, is civilian death tolls as a result of the evacuation behind the lines. So let's put some of that to bed, because the figure that's often bandied around is that 40,000 civilians died of starvation behind the lines, specifically due to neglect by Wellington. And that's quite a long way from the reality, isn't it? Because there, there is a death toll there that we need to discuss properly, but the figures and the attribution of blame doesn't actually work out when you look at it properly. Yeah, well, I, I, th I think that the, the issue is, is, is you know, these deaths were caused by Wellington is an interesting one. And let, let me try and explain my thinking on that before we actually talk about the, the casualty itself. Now, certainly you, you, you read sort of French accounts, like Pelé as an example, and he was absolutely firmly of the opinion that this was all Wellington's fault. But his argument went along the lines of, well, you know, it's all Wellington's fault because if they'd surrendered, or retreated or evacuated the country straight away, then these Portuguese uh, casualties wouldn't have happened. So QED, it's Wellington's fault. Now, that's not quite how war works. So I, I think the French saying it's all their fault is, is a bit rich. The other thing I'd say, and, and Massena was very, very aware of this, that having advanced all the way into Portugal, even had he ejected the Allied army, from Lisbon, he would then find himself hundreds and hundreds of miles away from any French supplies in a country destitute of food with no way whatsoever of bringing supplies in by sea. And I think the outcome, and I, I speculate for the sake of argument, <laughs> that, that the situation could have been every bit as bad for the Portuguese civilians, even had the Allied army withdrawn. Because if it's a straight choice between feeding your army of feeding the civilians of a conquered country, um, somebody's going to come second every time. Yeah, this, Going this back to the, the point about the casualties, that this is this is kind of interesting because the Portuguese bandy around bigger numbers. I mean, I, I think even John Jones has, has sort of mentioned the figure of a hundred thousand, but it's very very difficult to get to the truth of them because nobody's actually tried to put the whole story together. Now. I believe, well, I, I know that as, yeah, as, soon, as soon in 1811 as the French left, the Portuguese Regency did send requests out to the various councils uh, and authorities asking for figures on casualties during the period. So it would appear something was done. I don't know how far that went. Figures I have seen in relatively recent Portuguese works um, talk about the Coimbra district. Coimbra's well up into the north of Portugal, but Coimbra, sorry, not Coimbra district, Coimbra diocese. Coimbra diocese at that point pretty much went down to Santarem, which is only about 50 miles from Lisbon and stretched quite a way along the country. So it was quite a big populous chunk of Portugal at the time. Now the figures that came from that area was something in the region of 40,000 civilians died. They split that down into 3,000 which they said were directly at the hands of, I think the word they use was violence, or my tran Google Translate said violence, violence by French troops. 
and 35,000 were caused by um, infection, epidemic, whatever word you want to use. But yeah, I, I translate that to mean starvation and illness caused by starvation. starvation. So yeah, the, the French weren't necessarily going around wholesale murdering the Portuguese population, but the consequence of taking their food is, is, a, is a slow death rather than a quick death. If the number around in the Coimbra diocese was 40,000, then it is known there were significant problems around Lisbon and numbers up to 400,000, although more generally 200,000 civilians evacuated to the Lisbon area, some going to the South Bank. It's not necessarily unreasonable to think that there could have been 40,000 civilian deaths around the Lisbon area as well. So 100,000 in Portugal doesn't sound wildly off. Whether we'll ever be able to put some better numbers together, I don't know at this point. But you know, somewhere out there, I think there might be more information to help us try and put some figures on that. But you know, Portugal was a small country at the time. I'm desperately trying to remember population. Three million? Anyone? Andrew, you got a thought on that at the time? No. Um, but you know, it, it's very small million. So you know, 100,000 is, is a massive sort of death rate. And the other thing that we probably should point out is that Wellington did actually make efforts um, through subscriptions and through appeals back to Parliament to produce funds to keep, and supplies crucially, to keep the civilians, not just his army, but to keep the civilians fed as best could be done. He certainly it? did, and uh, you've reminded me, I, I just need to make one other point, is that responsibility for feeding Portuguese mm. civilians uh, was with the Portuguese Regency. It was not Wellington's responsibility to feed the Port Portuguese population, but clearly nobody could just see what was happening and not react to it. Wellington raised some money to help, Within the army itself, there were subscriptions to pay for it. Back home in England, money was raised to help them. Unfortunately, most of it didn't arrive till 1811. So I think the sum of £100,000 was assigned by the government in 1811 to, to try and help the most needy cases. And there were actually some public subscriptions in the UK as well. And Marcus Beresford has just kindly given me some information on that, which I'm still working to digest. But all these things were showing a concern, but it wasn't anything like the scale necessary to deal with the problem at the time. The Portuguese Regency were dealing with standard problems in this sort of area. So they were trying to do rationing. They were, you know, they were trying to, to, to quash profiteering within Lisbon itself. Yeah. We're trying to, you know, both in terms of food and accommodation. Uh, and and that th some of the edicts were quite draconian in trying to make the Lisbon vicinity support and assist you know, the, the many thousands of displaced civilians that were there. So it, it was a fairly tragic time for the displaced Portuguese population. But I think the ones who stayed in the French areas didn't necessarily think it was a good idea in hindsight. There were some areas where they seemed to find a status quo uh, and the brutality stopped. But as 
the period in front of the lines extended, the French had to move further and try harder to extract food from anybody they came across, and it, it did get quite brutal. Yeah, I was going to ask about this because there's a, a considerable body of literature already about the pretty horrific reprisals that went backwards and forwards between Spanish guerrillas and French troops, but perhaps people are less aware of the pretty horrendous things that were done to the Portuguese civilians who stayed north, i.e. they ignored the evacuation order and decided to stay with their homes. And there's, there are enough British accounts to prove that this isn't just sort of hearsay and speculation or, or one person kind of exaggerating. The, as the French pulled back, they devastated some of these towns and just wantonly slaughtered people, um, all kinds of, of horrific things, poisoning wells, um, sexual assaults, really, really kind of, if you stayed, it wasn't any better than if you went. I think, and not justifying the bad behaviour at all, and you and I may, must talk about siege behaviour at some point, but whilst the French were in front of the lines, you, you, you have some understanding but no sympathy of the fact the French troops were starving as well. Uh, so you know, they were facing a straight choice. Um, the routine brutality and I think the fairly well documented, even in some French accounts, brutality at times during the line, the, the time in front of the lines of Torres Vedras and during the retreat. Yeah, the, the, there is no place for that in war, but sadly it happens as much today as it did 200 years ago, 2000 years ago. Uh, it's wrong, I, I, I don't know how you justify it, but sadly it happens. Let's move the discussion onto the present then shall we? Um, and, and talk about how things are going for the Friends um, and how things are going out in Portugal in terms of the restoration work. What's, what's been the latest developments for you? Uh, well, and just to finish off what we're talking about, I think the final point I'd make is that this is Wellington's greatest victory uh, and it's probably one that people know the least about um, compared to all the battles he fought. He lost practically no troops. The French casualties from starvation as much as anything else were enormous. Uh, yeah, people don't, generally speaking, know about it, which is one of the jobs we've got, is to try and promote knowledge of the lines from those, those people who are interested in, in Wellington's career and the, and the Peninsula War uh, generally. Uh, but the lines, but the friends are going well, despite the fact that we've had to postpone our visit to Portugal this October, we're going to be having a lecture from Mark uh, on that on the line stay as part of our AGM in the uh, in in a couple of weeks time, so um, it's been hard because we haven't been able to have proper meetings, but we've just uh, agreed to finance a, a small grant to uh, to restore some signage in, uh, in in Portugal, uh, and we maintain our strong links with the uh, the Portuguese local authorities uh, and indeed the uh, the Portuguese wineries if you like to visit as well, um, so. I think things are going pretty well and compared to when we started this 10, 11 years ago, I think there's a significant difference both in terms of the extent to which the lines have been restored, the extent to which there's real interest in Portugal in the lines, which has grown dramatically, you know, interest in the UK uh, and the friends 
we're always happy to attract uh, new members and even if we can't go and visit there's plenty of information thanks to mark on the uh, on the website and thanks to our members in portugal for providing information back to us as well and if anybody wants to join details are on the website i was going to ask about that actually but before we we do talk about that um so how much has actually been restored now um well mark's probably got a better grasp of that than i have yeah I in terms of the situation and sticking with the number of 152 which, which is not a bad number there were 150 forts roughly when they were built up to 1812 you can still identify slightly over 100 of them now some of them are built over and are gone forever but 100 exist in some shape or form and pretty much all of them can be visited 35 are formally maintained so there is a you know, lot of time and effort um, done to keep those in a situation. So yeah, you can visit you can visit a lot of these forts. They're signposted. There's information sheets when you get there. There's boards up so you can see what what's going on. Um, it is fascinating if you do it on a nice day. The scenery is fantastic. The flora and fauna is fantastic. The restaurants are fantastic. You know, why wouldn't you want to do it? Um, so yeah, there's still a lot there you can see. And I think th this is the important thing about them. They're, they're not very well known, but this is one of the few areas where you can go and put your hand on a piece of history and, and feel the vibes that come back from it. And that's well worth a trip out because some of it is quite amazing. And standing on the top of some of the hills, particularly if you've walked up them from the bottom, is spectacular while you catch your breath. Yeah, you can go and see the signal stations and see just how far you can see from the signal stations. You can see some of the military roads are still pretty well preserved. So you can see the military roads that you're a key part of the of the lines as, as Mark mentioned earlier on uh, and, and the big redoubts are are huge um, last I think we're still doing it again this year on Torres Vedras Day they do a reenactment um, which has a lot of enthusiasm to it uh, a lot of bangings um, and uh, it's quite an enjoyable even if uh, enjoyable afternoon out and, and the highlight I should say that, that this I think they are doing every year we've been once is that they hold the dinner on lines of Torres Vedras Day in a marquee in Fort San Vicente at Torres Vedras. And that, that is quite an amazing event. You could say that. <laughs> and how can people join? I mean, because you're a member's organisation, it's worth saying. Yeah. So how do people go about joining? Let's give them a little bit of detail about that. Well, the easiest way is just click on the website and the details are there. Um, and on Facebook and on Twitter. Yeah, yeah so pages. remind people of the Twitter address. Not a clue. <laughs> Put friends of <laughs> the lines of Torres Pedras in. Now the website, www.f-ltv.co.uk. Uh, Facebook, oh, blind, that's the wrong address. Um, HTTPS colon slash slash www.facebook.com slash groups slash 296 Two four zero seven zero seven four five slash. I, I think you'll find if, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think you'll find it if you put friends of the lines of Taurus Fedras in the internet or yeah. Facebook or Twitter, they will pop up straight away. 
yeah yeah i've just looked up the twitter address it's at of vedras so yeah. there you go facebook you twitter go. online one yeah. way or another people can find you if, if you do want to know more about the forts themselves as andrew said on the website there is a picture and some information on every single fort and mark i know people will want to read some of your books off the back of this remind everyone about your titles and where they can find them he's got loads of them the, the easiest way of finding the majority is, is, is just put Mark S. Thompson in Amazon. Um, you can obviously find my book, Wellington's Engineers, on the Pen and Sword website. I would encourage you to go to the Helium website to order my new book, which literally will be out in the next couple of weeks. That is called uh, Wellington's Favourite Engineer. It's about John Burgoyne. But it's not actually just about engineering. The, these guys were at most events that happened during the war. They wrote notes and kept detailed information on what was going on. So it's a commentary, sometimes in huge detail, on a lot of the events that happened in the Peninsula War with some engineering. So if you're interested in the period, you, you, you will find there's some stuff in there like interesting so a, a long dialogue about John Moore's choice of routes in, in 1808 into Spain which still causes great angst now um, I've taken quite a bit of time to to pick that apart because John Burgoyne had some involvement in it and from his diaries you can you can actually pick and place the routes in more detail than you'll find in anything else I've I've seen in print so it, it, it's it's a good Peninsula the war read not about boring engineers mark andrew it's been brilliant talking to you thank you so much for joining me on the napoleon assist thank, thank you. you that was peninsula war historian mark thompson and the chairman of the friends of lines of torres vedras andrew dismore joining me to discuss the friends of the lines of torres vedras as you've just heard you can follow the friends on twitter at of vedras and you can follow mark at Mark S. Thompson too. If you are a regular listener to the Napoleon Assist, you'll know what I'm about to say. Please do like, share and retweet the link to this and previous episodes. If you have any questions or comments, you can contact me on Twitter at History. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do take the time to leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. I'll be back in a fortnight with another exclusive interview for you. I'll be talking to Jack Gill, about his book on the Battle of Znaim, an action which followed the 1809 Battle of Wagram and had often overlooked impacts on the peace negotiations that followed Wagram. In November, I'll be doing a special Napoleon Month where we'll really go to town on the Emperor, the history, legacy and memory, so keep an eye out for details of that. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.